don't know what that meant, but yeah. 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 Hello, hello. I wonder how our listeners doing. Uh, yeah, our single listener. I think uh, I think they're doing well. Uh huh. Um, it's my mom. She's doing fine. Oh, good. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome back to uh, the fourth episode. We really did make it to four episodes. I don't. I don't know why I said that. It's not a monumental number. Four is four is very random. I think relative to podcasts started by twenty year olds, four is a lot. That's probably true. But we we've made it to the fourth episode yeah. of Hard Obscurantism, and we are moving on from Malcolm Gladwell today. We have Woo. not only have we made it to the fourth episode of the podcast, we've made it to the second topic of our podcast. Mm. And today we are discussing Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is one of the world's leading authorities on language and the mind. He's written a lot of books and written a lot of articles. He is the Harvard College professor and Johnstone family professor of psychology at Harvard University. And he was recently in the news because he thinks rationality is uncool and no longer seen as dope, fat, chill, fly, sick, or da bomb. <laughs> That was uh, that was fun to read on, on Twitter the other day. <laughs> That's his new book, though. That's his new book that is coming out. It, it might actually already be out. I think it is already out. It's okay. Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters by Steven Pinker. That's his newest book. We are not talking about that book today. We are talking about Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress which he identifies as the four main overarching themes of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, of course, being a generic term referring to a series of philosophical and political theory kind of developments in the, for Pinker in the 18th century, for Mm -hmm. some people stretching back earlier and kind of connected to the scientific revolution perhaps the renaissance um but yeah so that's what we're talking about steven pinker's take on the enlightenment and its value for contemporary society yeah i think that we can probably talk about financial uh products and the rise of markets as being essential to the enlightenment but we'll talk about that when we get into the book more i assume so we read four sections of the book the uh Introduction and part one, Enlightenment, which is broken up into three chapters. Dare to understand uh, chapter one, chapter two is intro, evo, and info. And chapter three is the counter-enlightenment. And again, Pinker's a very interesting thinker, I think, in psychology. So the sections of the book that actually deal with cognition and how it works and sensory experience, they're, I think, very interesting at points. And so, for example, the first section, Dare to Understand, just kind of outlines what the Enlightenment is. And he will talk about Kant in 1784 and the uh, information physicist, the quantum information theorist, David Deutsch as well, who I think is a rough contemporary of Pinker's. And he tries to like synthesize these two stories together to bring one notion of the Enlightenment as kind of enlightened, as 
reason awakening from its dogmatic slumber, and then critically engaging with the world. Some parts of this were interesting because I, I think he correctly outlines that the Enlightenment was deistic at first, and then the sort of development of natural science caused that to fall away. So what, what, what's going on there is that reason might tell us different things based on different information. So he doesn't fall into the obvious trap of reason leading to obvious points. And all in all, it's a relatively like simple chapter. He talks about reason and sympathy and emotions and how human beings are now better off than they ever were before and what this and why this is good. So I, I think what's interesting is the preface, though, is explains what propels his investigation, which is both the rise of Trump and far right nationalism, as well as a question that was asked by a member of his audience, which is, why should I be alive? Or what, yeah. what should we do? Yeah. Which I think is like an interesting question to pose in this world of natural science where there's no magic or God or anything like that to support those questions. And in the second chapter, he outlines Evo, Entro, and Info, which he thinks are essential things to the modern world. Uh, entropy, evolution, and information. Like the second law of thermodynamics, which is chaos always increases in a closed system. And he outlines these things and how it's relevant to human affairs. He actually tries to directly link how entropy is important for our everyday experiences. And this chapter has interesting parts and parts that I think you might have had issues with, but we can get to that in a second. And can I just say, can I just say real quick? Yeah. That the second law of thermodynamics seems really stupid to me because it seems to me that it's more, (laughs) it's more ordered when one thing is hot or like when when things are equal what (laughs) like 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 the second sorry this is disraeling the conversation but like the second law of thermodynamics is like temperature it's like entropy always increases and that means that if you have a hot thing and you have a cold thing heat is going to move from the hot thing to the cold thing yeah heat disperses and that's so it becomes more disordered apparently Mm -hmm. when it becomes equal when thing when when things become e- when heat becomes equally distributed within this closed system well it becomes harder to get energy out of the system when it's uh, more disordered so like as the heat uh, distributes evenly throughout a set of objects it becomes harder to get useful energy out of it but... I, I i get why they do it it just seems like order and disorder seems just like flipped for me and that's always confused me because <laughs> it's like it's more ordered when there's massive inequality because that creates potential for energy, but I don't see how that's ordered, but this, this is not a relevant point at all. Okay. Do you have anything to add about the section, uh, about the content of it before we dive into the, like, um, no, you can, you can go with the summary of the third chapter if you want. The third chapter, which is the counter enlightenments is where he tries at first to take up some of his critics as he imagines them. And I think that's kind of important. He outlines four or five movements against the Enlightenment rationality through figures like Herder, Rousseau, Nietzsche, and other kind of more left-wing thinkers. These include the sort of fetishization of violence that he sees in Nietzsche and Romanticism, or a cynicism about progress, or the view of yourself as part of an organic whole. Uh, I don't know what that means, but... uh... (laughs) Yeah. But... (laughs) Yeah, so he, these are the opponents he sets up for the rest of the book. And these sort of five intellectual traditions he takes issue with as 
being critical of the Enlightenment. And I think this will probably be the biggest issue that we have with the book because it has the most problems, I think, as a like work of philosophy. But we can get to that yeah. in a second. So he takes up like the romantic environmentalism and... I think interestingly, he doesn't locate this on either side of the political spectrum. Spectrum the counter enlightenment affects both sides, but again, this is a very deflated discussion of the counter enlightenment. Yeah, which was an actual historical movement of romantics criticizing the enlightenment's totalizing nature. But we can get to that later. Well, it's not just romantic. It's been many people who have done this, right? I mean, yeah. Agamben comes to mind, or sorry, not Agamben, oh, but um, Adorno. Oh, okay, Adorno yeah, comes good, to mind. Yeah, yeah as, as um, very but, clearly seeing a lot of problems with the, what the Enlightenment led to, which is you know fairly enough. The Holocaust was bad. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> I'll 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 step out on that that limb. I think that's like the a broad summary of the chapters that we've read so far. Absolutely. And, yeah. First of all, I'm just going to throw this out there. I think it's important to understand the book is polemical. It's a popular audience trying to advocate for a political project. So this isn't going to necessarily be like this rigorous work through of authors where he's like tries to examine how Nietzsche's internal premises fall apart when you pull a certain thread or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's trying to advocate for liberal rationalism, which, yeah, cool. I like that. I, I like I like Habermas. So I'm kind of primed to be sympathetic to this, but I yep. think I think his intellectual history is very truncated, which we talked we'll talk about this throughout it. For example, he correctly notes that Rousseau has an ambiguous position with regards to the Enlightenment and the Counter Enlightenment. He lists them in both categories, but he doesn't pull apart what this might mean for his project so far. If Rousseau is of both, how does that how does that show that there might not actually be a neat distinction? Or importantly. A lot of people actually think that Rousseau's general will, which I think he means when he talks about the organic whole that these thinkers think of, uh, which is the idea that there's some sort of like set of totality of norms that you're in that you kind of wish now and forever. Some people think that that's where Kant gets the categorical imperative from, which is so important for Pinker's own moral theory, I think. Or, or Spinoza, who he seems to like a lot, was an unflinching rationalist who was rebuked by Kant's critique. Which, again, seems a bit of a problem. Or, in a good reader called Race and the Enlightenment, uh, it presents a more complicated picture of the dialogue between Kant and Herder. Because Herder is listed in the Counter-Enlightenment, and Kant's listed in the Enlightenment. But the part of the debate between Kant and Herder was, Kant was, like, psychotically racist. Kant was a very weird man. Yeah. But Herder was, very like... Racist what's your evidence for this? Like, aren't certain cultural norms, or Herder might have gone pretty far on this, but aren't cultural norms subjective and isn't progress, like, defined by those subjective cultural norms? So there is a larger story being obscured. Or, again, I have another point that I'm going to bring up, but then we can kind of go into this, but... Yeah, go ahead. He lists Nietzsche and Heidegger as anti-humanists, which is correct, I think, based on the definition of humanism he has, I think. Yeah. But... Isn't there also a debate about if Spinoza was a humanist? Because I know Althusser takes Spinoza and Althusser is not a humanist. So the narrative is truncated. It, it's very abrupt. And I think that the intellectual history isn't as 
fleshed out as it could be, and maybe that might affect his case. So, yeah, I, I don't have the answer to those questions, but clearly neither does Pinker. Yeah, this is he's not, he's not attempting to answer those questions, but in questions of those nature, but they they do pose a problem because he's attempting to, and at times he recognizes, I think the the issues with trying he recognizes that these people would have disagreed on a lot of things mm-hmm. a lot of them you know hated each other even um yeah. personally so trying to cram them all together into one neat little group called the enlightenment is is a bit of a well it's it's fairly revisionist and and mm-hmm. it's in its you know efforts and it's not it's certainly not going to provide you all the all the nuance that that you're looking for and maybe maybe we we should hope to see in this book but it's it's not i don't think it's going to be there uh, or but that so, but that's because it's polemical right like the 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 existence of criticism of the enlightenment which i think he would say that critics of the enlightenment take the enlightenment to be this reified singular mm-hmm. entity of shared things so i'm going to identify those things that they're targeting and treat it similarly as they do but show why it's a good thing i think that almost might miss the point of what makes the enlightenment interesting to talk about though and (laughs) this is kind of not in the book but he doesn't really so far talk about how this actually affected everyday people yeah what that would look like because in order for reason to awake from its dogmatic slumber, it requires the people in town halls to kind of get together and talk about stuff or gather together in coffee shops and discuss the meaning of things and what we ought to do. But he's focusing on a debate between intellectuals about intellectual stuff. And I think this is, again, this is Habermas here. But, you know, yeah, his, his description of the Enlightenment is of a sort of moment of awakening in which people go to coffee shops and talk about stuff which i think is a bit more connected to the human experience than perhaps this is but the um well the fourth ideal of progress which he's arguing is not only a tenant of the enlightenment but it has been a result uh you know a real live Mm -hmm. consequence of the enlightenment is his connection there i think to to everyday lives because he's gonna he's gonna Mm -hmm. argue that the intellectual the ideal you know, in the realm of ideas, revolution brought about by the Enlightenment leads to material changes in how the world is organized through the, the power of science in humanism to lead to progress on its own, on its own front, right? Like, like the progress, the progress is measured by science and humanism, and it's realized by science. It's, it's a bit self-reflexive in that way, but... Does he ever define humanism? Um... Because I was looking for a definition and I didn't really see one because it seems like he thinks that there's like some sort of human telos towards understanding that can be. Yeah. So I think this is on page, it's going to be on like page 14 Mm -hmm. or sorry. No, no, no. Uh, What would it be? Sorry. I got to do the math because the uh, PDF, I totally didn't just pirate from the internet is um, (laughs) doesn't have page numbers on it would be nine. At the end of the page nine, maybe the ideal of the idea of a universal human nature brings us to a third theme, humanism. Okay. I have this on my on my Kindle. Gotcha. Yeah. So I Well, we're not gonna be able to do page numbers, but anyways. Um yeah, what is, what's the 
They laid that foundation in what we now call humanism, which privileges the well-being of individual men, women, and children over the glory of the tribe, race, nation, or religion. That's kind of the best definition he gives there. But what does that even mean? Um, he talks about we are endowed with a sentiment of sympathy. And he kind of, it's kind of results-oriented. It's like mm-hmm. an impelled alignment thing to condemn not just religious violence, but also the secretary cruelties of their age, including slavery, despotism, executions for frivolous offenses, such as shoplifting, poaching. The Enlightenment is sometimes called the humanitarian revolution because it led to the abolition of barbaric practices that had been commonplace across civilizations for millennia. So humanism is a belief in a universal human nature, which includes in it the capacity for sympathy which creates moral demands for the improved treatment of all human beings okay i think i think that's how that works so but doesn't that pose a bit of a problem for his definition of rationality though because if his definition of humanism is that which i think it is but it so his is rationality a tool for sympathy to sort of manifest itself. So like I'm sympathetic for other human beings because of my nature. And then rationality is what lets me effectively like guide my sympathy in some way, because I think they're separate, but not, you know, not distinct. There's they're distinct features of human nature. Mm-hmm. So humans are rat that humans have the capacity for reason and humans have the capacity for some, they don't have to be interrelated, but they can be, you know, reason can lead you to you can use reason to guide you towards science which can be sympathetically applied to reducing the ailments of other people i I think that's what he's getting at but i think think that's his his theory of how this all works okay because it seems like i I've, i've had a bit of a hard time with this throughout the book but reason isn't reason is means ends it's a a way of effectively achieving a goal but the goal is derived from sentiments or sympathy, but also kind of reason. Because it seems like there's a sort of like Kantianism that he wants to bring in, but he's grounding it on sympathy, potentially. Yeah. Which, considering that he at other points puts reason and uh, emotions in opposition, I, I don't know really what to make of this, because it seems like sometimes they work together and sometimes they don't, which might just be a descriptive claim of how this works. Yeah, I think I think you can imagine that like reason and science being put to, you know, uses like how do we build better bombs or whatever just for the point of winning wars or technology design. So it doesn't have to necessarily be oriented towards humanism. Mm-hmm. But if you have a, a shared commitment to the improved treatment of human beings, which he thinks humanism is, then then that combines with reason and science to create progress i believe i that that's kind of my understanding i was thinking somewhere something along those lines yeah is what i think he's going for yeah so do we have anything else we want to say or do you want to just dive into the good the bad and the ugly yeah we can just uh dive right in awesome do you want to start first with the good um yeah i think i can just go quickly i think we briefly mentioned it it's that you know steven pinker is a trained psychologist he teaches at harvard he's not an idiot like some you know some not not me personally might say malcolm gladwell is Mm, but um um you know people have been saying but anyways he writes compellingly at times 
And when he talks about things like entropy, evolution, and information, it's not it's not uninformed. He you know he he knows what he's talking about. He's he's he does seem to give decent ex- especially the cognitive stuff and about mm-hmm. how you know brains work and, and and things of that nature. I'm sure there's room for people to disagree with him about it, but I don't have anything. I don't have the foundations to do that, and it seems generally well put together. Yeah, I agree with that. When he was talking about how cognition works and how human beings develop um, develop that faculty, and I thought it was very cool. I have like two other points I thought I was generally sympathetic to, where it's he is aware that there is a problem with attempting to go back to religious or other forms of metaphysical morality because those just kind of aren't possible anymore in this uh de-sanctified world we live in you can't you can't found a moral system on that and i i think he does a good job recognizing that as a reality that it's we live in a post-metaphysical world whatever we talk about when we talk about ethics has to be aware of that and second i don't know i kind of like like a defense of rationality in some way I think it's important for left-wing pot uh, projects. I mean, the podcast is named after an essay written by a rational choice theorist. <laughs> like, That's true. Yeah. I, I, I come in sympathetic to this. My ethical views are like Kant distilled through like a renter Habermas. And I, I don't know. I think left-wing projects should be more critically rational because I don't know, like my hottest philosophy take is that Judith Butler is fine. They're not, like they're not the greatest author of all time, but they're not terrible. They they have really interesting work, but I I don't know how their normative implications flow from some of their descriptive claims. But I think that this is an important thing for left wing projects to keep in mind that we need to have like a critical rationality or faculty of judgment that lets us talk about what we ought to do, as well as just describing critically society. Yeah. Um, I do think the the some of the information about remembering, you know, one of my f- favorite professors always says is just remember that human beings are just some slightly more sophisticated apes yeah. that are very bad at counting. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, you know, there's there's some of, of that that I think can be can be useful to remember. Mm-hmm. Although um I don't know. I, I know that there's issue, been a lot of issues in the social psychology kind of um, behavioral economic sphere with replication. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not well-versed enough in that literature to know exactly what, what among these things about cognition and, and it, how it works is, has been replicated and what hasn't. But I, so I'm a, I'm a little cautious to, to be too on board with his understanding of, of cognition and issues, but you know, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. No, I kind of agree, but it is one of the more like, oh, this is very confidently written parts of the book. Yeah. And it's compelling. I think that's most of the good we had. Do you have any more? That's all I have. Yeah. That's about all, all I've got for, for good. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to ugly then. Ugly. You want to start us off? Got anything? I got a lot of stuff on this where it's like, Uh just like, pedantic quibbling uh because he deflates philosophy into psychology sometimes i don't like that that's not not cool not cool with me sometimes i'll go after creationism and religion which feels a little dated to the richard dawkins era um 
I don't know what he thinks of the pre-moderns as like anyone before the enlightenment as like, do they not have reason? That seems a little bit problematic. I, I don't yeah. like that. I don't like the way he structures the critiques of authors because you can do internal and external critiques where it's like internal critiques are like this author doesn't work on the own, their own terms that they set up to solve the problem. Or you can do external critiques like X author holds this position, which isn't useful for our goals. And he seems to do the latter most of the time, but I just don't like that. Those are some of my uglies. Yeah, I'm scrolling through. I don't, I didn't have a lot of uglies, things I would have called ugly. Um, I haven't really checked out the citation style, but it seems fine. There's it's more fine. citations than there was with Gladwell, which is good. And it's, you know, it's actually Pinker's words. I mean, cross your fingers. Hope it is. There's not that, uh, not a lot of, I mean, there, there are, there are, there are definitely some serious quotations and, and whatnot, but. Well, I, there, there were a couple points in like the uh, counter enlightenment where he'll say certain people say X and it's like, who, who says this? Yeah. That was a, we can talk about in the, that in the bad or the ugly, but it's a, indeed a common criticism of the enlightenment project. That is, it is a Western invention unsuited to the world and all its diversity is doubly wrongheaded. Who says that? Yeah. Which I, someone may have said that. Probably someone has said that, but who said that? He'll do that every so often, which a little bit, a little bit grating. Yeah, I, I, I can talk about this in the ugly. It's, I, I've already mentioned it to you, but I felt, I feel uncomfortable at times when he's talking about entropy because in in it we and we get this discussion of of darwin who's actually you know obviously the most profound alternative to entropy right because it's like darwin's whole point is that through random in the theory of evolution it's that through random chance sometimes sometimes things don't actually get worse sometimes they get better randomly i, I think and, the point, i think the point is that like there's a point in entropy when like energy the ability to extract energy is decreasing that complexity is at its maximum so like when you're stirring your coffee it's simplest at either end of the spectrum when it's either fully mixed or just pure coffee with the mm -hmm. cream but there's a point as it's being mixed where the cream and the coffee are like this kind of complicated structure which is like i think analogous to our point in evolution that's like we're getting, we're, we're still increasing in entropy as the energy becomes less able to be extracted, but the complexity is increasing, but at some point it will stop increasing. That's yeah, the... but, but he, he's talking about entropy as, uh, so there's entropy in the sense of, in the sense that when like a creature reproduces, it doesn't create a, a perfect replication of itself because yeah. there's entropy in that process. And also there's, just a bunch of crap happening in the world that makes it hard for species to survive and, yeah. and things change and get worse. So that leads to entropy or, you know, just like the decay, the eventual decay of, of life, I guess is kind of what he's getting at. But then Darwin's point is that sometimes the entropy in implicit in the reproduction process leads to random mutations. And sometimes most of the time they're bad, but sometimes they're good. And if they're good enough, then they can be reproduced yeah. through re reproduction if they're genetically inheritable. A anyways, that's, but he kind of does a little turn into like some 
stuff that sounds social Darwin-y. It's not, I don't think Tinker's like a social Darwinist or, you know, some kind of crazy, you know, he has a clear moral project, which is good. Mm-hmm. But it just, when he talks about some of this stuff, it, it, it gives me the uncomfortable feeling of like, someone could read this and take and take it a very different way. Like he has this line, nature is a war and much of what captures our attention in the natural world is an arms race. And in the point he's making is that like, you know, it's all the things that we see in animals and humans are just different specializations that allow them to compete for, for scarce resources. And humans obviously have the best brains, I guess, and the most cognitive function. But it just, when you, when you, when you see it put like that, it just gives me, gives me the uncomfy feelings. So uh, I know, I know why they're doing this, but it's like, like the analogy I, I gave to you is when economists start talking about like re- sex and reproduction and how uh, poor people need to stop having, stop having so many kids. Um, and it just, it gives me uncomfy feelings. Yeah, that's fair. I think that he is obviously very much against anything like that, but I could see yes. the, yeah, I, I had a similar moment where it's like, did, when he's talking about like the entropy of the universe and how we're all inevitably going to die, but that makes life more meaningful. And it's like, I know you, I don't think Pinker likes existentialism, but it's like, did you just kind of rediscover a version of existentialism? Yeah. In entropy. So, okay. Want to do but the, the point, the, you know, the point oh, is I think he, he has moral and political commitments, but you could easily read this and be like, huh, so nature's a war hmm. and we're all just a bunch of different replicators competing for resources. I don't I don't buy this whole sympathy thing you're telling me about or sympathy just becomes a, a different tool for human collectives to work together like sympathy is an evolutionary like I don't know no. it, it's eh. that's fair I, I would have to do more work than I've done to work <laughs> it into a full-blown criticism but I, I'm I'm perfectly content to just leave it at the it's an uncomfortable feeling for me. we could potentially call it problematic even if we're into vague nonsense well you, you, the word problematic is problematic now so ooh, ooh, ooh. okay well, let's do the we bad we can't do that we can't do that we can't we can't do the bad why can't we do the bad no no, no we can't do that <laughs> we can't we can't be problematic no absolutely not did you want to start with the bad sure chapter three it's awful yeah it was bad chapter three is the counter enlightenments chapter in I think as you've already, if you know, been listening, chapters one and two aren't perfect, but we have a lot less problems with them than we have with chapter three, mm-hmm. because chapter three is when he attempts to give the explanation of criticisms of the Enlightenment, and he his heart is not in it, because he already disagrees with all these people, and they certainly are not getting a sympathetic treatment, yeah. or even a... Or even a um, a reasonable treatment, I, I would say. There's there's a lot of room to criticize the Enlightenment or even the things that Pinker has been holding up as parts of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. you know, throughout this book. So in the first two chapters, and he doesn't engage with some of those and the ones that he does engage with are, you know, distorted and kind of straw men of the former selves. The, the one thing that, you know, we were talking about his explanation of progress that falls from humanism. And he's like, 
the elimination of slavery and then the and harsh punishments if if that doesn't count as progress nothing does and that immediately made me think of Foucault and discipline and punish where he basically says uh yeah the removal of harsh harsh cruel punishments is actually awful and all the reformers made the world a worse place and now everything's a prison that's uh that's uh probably not the summary you want to use in your in your class but uh that's no. that's something that Foucault does point out is the problems implicit in actually the reforms of of punishment and thinker certainly doesn't engage with that i think that's right because i mean we're normal human beings with like healthy moral compasses and yeah slavery and torture are obviously wrong and it's good they're gone but foucault's criticism of the enlightenment has like sort of systematizing and rationalizing everything with like instruments of punishment and discipline to create a society in which everyone behaves and is like controlled in a prison is an important and good criticism of the enlightenment. Yeah. Might be wrong, but it's a better criticism than is brought out at any point in this book. Because at some point, I think he says something along the lines of some people blame science for the Holocaust. You remember that line or something? Yeah. Some somewhere. Yeah. There's, let me try to find it because it's like, well, who says this? Because I kind of recognized a, Gombin, yeah. So in many yep. colleges and universities, science is presented not as a pursuit of true explanations, but just as another narrative or myth. Science is commonly blamed for racism, imperialism, world wars, and the Holocaust. Sorry, and, quick side note. Did you did you realize that CP Snow appears in this book as well? He's also in the glad in the Bomber Mafia. I did not it's, notice. It's that. the same author. What? If you just scroll up the page, the page just before that, he talks about following cp snow we can call it the second culture yeah that's the same author that uh gladwell's talking about for his discussion of lindemann wow we really i know it's very strange it's very strange but, so it, but it's true huh but anyways that's not particularly important just an observation i was when i read this i was like well who thinks this what what what, what who are we arguing against in this section because to say science is another narrative or myth kind of belies the more complicated criticism of science presented by authors like Heidegger or Husserl, or well, not Husserl, Husserl's complicated, but it, it ignores the very complicated criticisms put forward where they're obviously saying an external world exists, but it, to say science is a narrative or myth is missing the point of what they're doing. But when he talks about the Holocaust as being like produced by science, I'm sure I know some like silly undergrad who might think that. That seems like something someone would say, but that's not a good argument. If you want to make your argument better, pick someone who actually makes a good argument. I think maybe a Gombin might come kind of close to this in homo soccer. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't read it. It's a more complicated explanation of how like the sovereign and the laws of a society allow you to create like an excommunicated other who you can then kill without like punishment. And that creates like the paradigm of the camp. I mean, or more, more, you know, directly, you could talk about IBM and Ford and the role they played in providing the technological apparatus that the Nazis used to perpetrate the Holocaust. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. So, and, sometimes... and that's not science, but science doesn't do anything by itself if, if you know, you take that kind of view. Yeah. So, it, I, that's a real issue I had with this where he'll sometimes just present arguments, uh, but it's not they're really bad arguments to (laughs) intentionally then knock down easily. And and one thing he does 
and it's like um it's like the book's a conversation with someone who Pinker thinks he's smarter than. <laughs> yeah. Because he has the counter-enlightenment these... se- section. What? Specifically the counter-enlightenment section. Yeah, but parts of the book too, like he has uh, in the counter-enlightenment section, the second page of it, he says, he starts a, a new paragraph where he says, it sounds mad, but in the 21st century, those counter-enlightenment ideals continue to be found across a surprising range of elite cultural and intellectual movements. And those little, those little jabs that are like, I know it sounds crazy that anybody would disagree with these great things kind of gives away the whole project in the mm-hmm. sense of he's bought and sold this thing. And, and he's, that's not a good metaphor. I don't know what I'm trying to say, the exact metaphor of what I'm saying, but he is, he is very much entrapped in, in, in this way of thinking and he can't imagine that it is bad. Yeah. He, I think, I think he thinks the critics of the enlightenment are ridiculous. Like it, like it feels like he thinks it's ridiculous that he has to write this book. Yeah. I think that's right. He doesn't respect the alternative. And that, in that, you know, sense of ridiculousness comes out in those short little quips that he has occasionally throughout the thing. Like it sounds mad or it's hard to believe, but just, you know, short little statements that suggest, yeah, you should, you should be asking what this enlightenment thing sounds so great. Why? Why isn't everybody on board? I think that shows up in the Nietzsche section where he briefly talks about Nietzsche and it's just like Nietzsche is a complete reject. He, he seems to just think Nietzsche is a complete rejection of anything good or worth doing and is just like wanting to die for something greater than himself and a romantic return to something pre-enlightenment or something along those lines. And I have my thoughts about Nietzsche, but to try to like, summarize an entire thinker who has literally hundreds of books written about him in that little bit of a section was like crazy to me i read that and i was like are what yeah and it's not like nietzsche's doing something for him too right like his morality takes the god is dead and we have killed him kind of that's like an important part of pinker's project yeah i think so <laughs> they're yeah they're both dealing with like, well, what happens now that Christianity is no longer tenable as a project and Nietzsche just takes it in a complete other direction, but Pinker can't understand that to engage with. And so it just comes off very. Yeah. So just to be clear, the five, the five main counter enlightenments he talks about are the first one's religious faith. The second one is basically nationalism but more broadly is the idea that people are the expendable cells of a super organism which he thinks the best example of is nationalism and that is i guess anti-humanist the third is green the green movement which is he definitely doesn't treat them accurately the fourth is criticisms of technology Mm -hmm. because it has made life too easy so green the green movement is like it's making life awful and then the nietzsche kind of nietzsche critique is it's making life too easy and then there's the criticism of science as the fifth one so anti anti anti-science because apparently people think science caused the holocaust instead they'd prefer it's like like a humanist uh or humanities anti-science thing so there's there's religion nationalism 
eco anti modernism, mm-hmm. anti technology, and anti science are the five. So, I, I think he's right to sort of identify nationalism as a failed response to what we were supposed to do now after the sort of desanctifying of the world and the enlightenment success in sort of dispelling myths about like religion in the world. But there are structural facts about why nationalism succeeds. So because we're talking about the enlightenment and we're talking about reason, you know, I have to bust out Habermas here. Of course, Uh, of course, of course, of course. This is from the very short introduction on Habermas, which is actually a really good reader, by the way, if you're interested in perhaps the greatest living thinker of all time. Okay, well, let's calm down there. Okay, yeah. So uh, so Habermas, is this, this reader says, the regressive aspects of nationalism are misfired attempts to do the following, to replace modern forms of social integration, communication, discourse, and legitimate law with effective ties of kinship. Uh, to find a pre-political natural set of criterion of membership in the political community, and three, to remove the influence of discourse and communication from the political process, which I actually just take to be a better version of the argument Tinker presents here on some level, is the Habermasian position on nationalism. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem complicated enough, right? Like he yeah. has this throwaway line here where he says, Many left-wing colleagues who learned that I was writing a book on reason humanism egged me on, relishing the prospect of an arsenal of talking points against the right. But not so long ago, the left was sympathetic to nationalism when it was fused with Marxist liberation movements. And it's like, of course it was. That was an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist nationalism. Like, like, like you can't just remove the context. Like, not all nationalism is created equal. Like, there's a difference between... I think anti, you know, in, we can talk about how like the thinkers mm-hmm. might not have even been that committed to nationalism, but there's a difference, I think, between anti and colonial nationalism as like a, a valuable tool for making the world a better place before perhaps being replaced by something better, which it often wasn't. But that's different than like, you know, German nationalism leading to the Nazis and the Holocaust or Turkish yeah. nationalism leading to the Armenian genocide or, or whatever you want to talk about. But because one's like a defensive assertion of identity in the face of pretty horrifying crime to establish a political community to then achieve a goal. Whereas in the sort of reactionary nationalism of Germany, the nation is the goal in and of itself, I think, is the problem. But yeah, there's a deflationary thing that Pinker does with that. Again, I'm a secular cosmopolitan liberal in every sense. So I find nationalism discomfort, like discomforting generally, but I understand its political point in certain contexts. It's, I don't understand why I, that is the only mention of Marxism in this chapter. (laughs) Like is Mark, is Marxism not anti-enlightenment? Like it might very well not be. My insane position is that Marxism is the Enlightenment project's culmination, but that's neither here nor there. I don't think Pinker would agree with that. I don't think Pinker would agree with that either. But it does feel weird that the the most obviously left wing one is the green anti modernism. Yeah, and there's no mention of of Marxism in this chapter. Like, I just I would be interested in knowing what Pink, Pinker thinks about because uh, he talks about Adorno in the next chapter. I read a the next page, oh, okay. it, but it's just like a oh yeah, Adorno along with these guys thinks X and it's like, oh, it's a little reductive, but that's like the only engagement I've seen even at, like 
kind of obliquely with Marxism. I guess something I thought was a little bit bad, and we kind of talked about this, but he links up sympathy and reason and then kind of decouples it at various points. But do you think that his notion of humanism and morality, it relies on sentiment to give it commitments? We, 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 I think we both agree that th- that might be the point that he drives for. But do you think that might actually point to a tension in his own theory of rationality, that he relies on sentiments against sentiments, such as anger and rage, that give rationality a goal? I th- Go ahead. No, I, I just don't have a thought on this because it seems like yeah. kind of at odds because I, I feel like he's like I don't want to get really like weird with this but it, it feels like he's like struggling in, like smuggling in a telos like rationality is an instrument but it's not but it can be guided by sentiment but only for correct things but I, I don't know what makes something correct or not because so oftentimes like also say like oh yeah this is natural or pleasurable but it's like that's just the naturalistic fallacy you're doing. Well, I, I think I think the big thing is that he thinks there's a universal human nature. Yeah. So I think sympathy is a universal, like like it's it's um tautological. Like you have to have the capacity for sympathy to mm. be a human being. Mm. So human beings will always have the capacity for sympathy, and they will that capacity for sympathy is what gives them morality because they unlike other more base creatures i guess have the capacity to identify the suffering of other living things and especially humans and work to rectify that and the way that they work to rectify that is through the application of reason and which is you know the capacity to measure claims against objective standards and science which is the capacity to apply reason to understanding how the world itself. Okay. That's, I think, I think that's, that's what he's at after. Okay. But, but like you, I think you right. Cause you, if you you don't have God, what do you root the categorical imperative in? And he roots it in a universal human nature. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like he does like a nat- like the naturalistic fallacy where I'll say something yeah. pleasurable and therefore good. And it's like, that could be the case, but you need like a middle like preposition that explains why here. So I don't know. That's just me being a frustrating pedant again, or that's the for ped- pedantic now, whatever. <laughs> Those are some of my issues so far with the book that it, it's not very serious of its criticisms and some parts of it are a little, I think, unclear philosophically themselves. Yeah. The, um, I was going to say the treatment of, of the romantic green movement is just oversimplified, right? Cause there's mm-hmm. a lot of green thought that isn't, that is committed to eco-modernism, which might be different than his eco-modernism. We'll get into that more. Cause I think he's a lot of this, I think is still introductory. He's setting up what his vision of the enlightenment and the counter enlightenment is, and he's going to go in more detail in the next chapters. So there will be a lot of more room to hash out these, okay, these issues and these discussions. Like regularly in this chapter, he talks about the chapters where he's going to discuss these claims. But I, I do think you know, hopefully he goes into more detail and gives them more credible runs through, and you know, actually deals with the the better versions of these 
criticisms of the Enlightenment, but I don't have a lot of hope that that's what he's going to do. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I was gonna try and find where he talked about sympathy real quick. Because that kind of bugged me, just because it seems unclear. Oh, I also just thought there's a lot, there are many moments where he just like says he just tries to like really quickly deal with like a possible criticism of him the the enlightenment gets a gets like a monopoly on progress that is weird Mm -hmm. he says enlightenment belief in progress should not be confused with the 19th century romantic belief in mystical forces laws dialectics struggles unfoldings destinies ages of ages of man and evolutionary forces that propel mankind ever upward towards utopia that made me cringe a bit just because it's like yeah i don't like the weird german magical nonsense in heidegger about like destinies of the germanic people but like you can have like a dialectic of recognition in hanneth who's a third generation frankfurt schooler who's just like an enlightenment liberal so it was just very sloppy and quick Shall we read five or six chapters for the next meeting then? Yeah, we we can get into more detail about any of the criticisms that we have. I'm sure he will, you know, run through a lot of this stuff again, and and there will be room to to talk. Okay. I I was just rereading, you know, scrolling back through, and I I'm gonna have problems, but <laughs> yep. Shall yep. I? I want to end with a quote. Okay. Not from Habermas. I know. I know you are you were excited for that, but I'm. Sorry. I was. I was really looking forward to my boy Moss. Yeah. Oof. Pinker talks a lot about Kant. Kant was born in Königsberg, Germany in uh, 1724 and he died in 1804. But let's jump 134 years into uh, 1938 uh, Germany at Freiburg. Uh, the physicist and philosopher Edmund Husserl has just passed away. He was a mathematician and philosopher born in the 1850s of Germany uh, and he was of Jewish descent. And he was interested in how to ground math and philosophy in the modern world and give us apodictic certitude, he called it, mathematical knowledge, because he thought the uh, enlightenment, in spite of all of its ambitions, had actually failed in some way, that our knowledge is now less sound or it's less sound than we think it is, because we can't actually explain the everyday phenomenon of human experiences. And he founded phenomenology as a result. So I think he's very interesting and unique. And I'm just going to read a quote from from him. Uh, The rationalism of the Age of Enlightenment is now out of the question. We can no longer follow its great philosophers or any philosophers of the past, but their intentions seen in the most general sense must never die out in us. For as I emphasize once again, true and genuine philosophy are science and true and genuine rationalism are one. Realizing this rationalism rather than the rationalism of the Enlightenment, which is laden with hidden absurdity, remains our task. If we are not to let specialized science, science lower to the status of an art, or the fashionable degenerations of philosophy into uh, irrationalistic busy work be substituted for the inexchangeable idea of philosophy as the ultimately grounding and universal science. Cool quote. I don't know what that meant, but yeah. 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 Hell yeah. All right. That about wraps it up for us here at Hard Obscurantism, episode four in the books. Thank you for listening and join us next time next week for more of Steven Pinker's enlightenment now and an explanation of why rationality is or should be the bomb. Ooh. 
Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye.